This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. To listen to the extended version of this episode, support us on patreon.com slash for the wild. Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Morgan Curtis. That's not about casting out my ancestors or punishing them for sin. It's about recognizing that we can only really heal when we've put right that which we've done wrong. Guided by the call to transmute the legacy of her colonizing and enslaving ancestors, Morgan is dedicated to working with her fellow people with wealth and class privilege towards redistribution, atonement, and repair. As a facilitator, money coach, organizer, and ritualist, she works to catalyze the healing of relationship with self, family, ancestors, community, and the land, enabling the surrender of power and control so that resources can flow towards racial, environmental, and economic justice. She is in the process of redistributing 100% of her inherited wealth and 50% of her income to primarily Black and Indigenous-led organizing and land projects. Morgan is a resident of Canticle Farm, a multiracial, interfaith, cross-class, intergenerational, intentional community in Lishan Ohlone Territory, Oakland, California. She is currently a graduate student at Harvard Divinity School, where she is studying the spiritual dimension of the reparations work required by white people. Well, Morgan, welcome. This is such a sweet moment to share with you, being deep friends and, gosh, comrades for so many years. I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with others and your work and my admiration for you. Mm, it's mutual. Thank you so much, Ayana. It's good to connect and be here and get to weave together. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, gosh, there is so much to say and to ask and to dive into, but I think I want to start with discussing the spiritual imperative of the work that you're doing. And I'm wanting to ask, how did you come to your work and what guiding voices are you listening to as you continue on this journey? Mm -hmm. mm, thank you. How did I come to this work? How did this work come to me? I was a young person who had my heart broken open by the world. I think I was like 10 years old going around hiding the light bulbs in my parents' home, being like so upset about climate change and what was happening to our earth. And 
I grew up from there. And when I was a college student, I was part of starting a fossil fuel divestment campaign. And it was in that campaign that I got educated by my peers, fellow students, mostly those of color around the deeper roots of the climate crisis, what I had been able to feel in my body since I was a young person, I began to understand as rooted in white supremacy, in colonization, in legacies that were perpetrated by my own ancestors. I was raised in a family that had portraits of our ancestors hanging on the wall and family silver under the stairs taken out on special occasions and stories of our early American history as something to be proud of. And so when I began to get taught, like, it was clear to me, oh, when we're talking about colonialism, that's my family, that's my ancestors who made those choices. When we're talking about capitalism, I have two investment bankers for grandfathers. That's my family too. And so I would say the voices I was listening to was firstly and primarily the earth and the call for radical change. And then the voices of initially friends, peers, fellow students of color and as time went on, mentors and elders, particularly Black and Indigenous folks who stuck with me long enough to educate me and open my eyes to my entangled history with our current moment. Thanks for opening up the conversation that way and being transparent about your personal story, which I know can be challenging, but I really appreciate the work that you do to demystify yourself to others. I think there's a lot of power and beauty and healing in that. And I want to kind of get into more of this generational trauma and even talk about sin a bit. And in Weather Reports, the climate of relationships and intersectionality with Terry Tempest Williams and Bronte Velez, two of our favorite guests so far. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk a lot about the idea of atonement alongside a deep contemplation of the founding sins of this country. And I'm wondering, how does the framework of sin and atonement structure the way you grapple with such intense questions, especially across generations? When I hear the word sin, the first voice that comes to mind is always my father. <laughs> he would say, Morgan, stop searching for sin in our family tree. And I can see how he reacted that way to some of my first searching and uncovering and looking for this history in my family. And I think that I wasn't so much searching for sin as like desperately trying to understand how to locate myself in 
history in our present crises. And as I looked for those ancestors, what I understood was, yes, my complicity, yes, my responsibility for repair. I could see the mistakes that they made. I could see the places where ancestors made choices where I could wish they made any other choice than the one they did. And it was tempting for a while to want to push them away, to want to pretend that they weren't my people and those weren't my stories, to do the sort of vanishing that I think whiteness can do in the United States of I can just disappear into a generic story and not take a particular responsibility. And how I've come to see it is the work that I'm doing towards reparations, towards atonement, towards the redistribution of land, money, power from white folks who have violently hoarded it and back towards the communities it was stolen from is that that's not about casting out my ancestors or punishing them for sin. It's about recognizing that we can only really heal when we've put right that which we've done wrong. It's about bringing what could be understood as a framework of intergenerational restorative justice. What is it to pick up that which has not been finished in my ancestral story that has not yet turned back and taken responsibility for? So I experience myself as on their side in that work to not have our family's only legacy be one of violence, inequality, climate injustice. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of the episode with Bronte on the pleasurable surrender of white Mm -hmm. supremacy that I know you and I have (laughs) talked about a bit. And when I think about this healing that you're doing for your lineage, there, it is healing and there's joy and there's release mm-hmm. and surrender. And like, it's almost like releasing the bricks off the the shoulders of these ancestors, at least how I'm feeling it as you speak, that the healing touches everyone in the past and mm-hmm. the future. It's there's something to it that feels really I mean, especially hearing it through you, that does feel uplifting and joyful. It's not some loss um, Mm -hmm. to let go or give away wealth, power, money, story. It's not, I mean, it's not that there's not grief, but it's not um, a net loss, which I think this culture really tries to tell us that if we give too much away, we have nothing left for ourselves. And of course, we could dissect that in a lot of different ways, but I feel like through you, I'm hearing like like a pleasurable surrender of it. And Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you, Bronte, for that framing. And yeah, the the greatest grief of my life has been letting in, actually letting my heart break when I see what my ancestors did, which includes enslaving other human beings of both African and native descent, which includes participating in genocidal wars, which includes, yeah, the taking and theft of land and life. And as I do this work of turning towards that history and getting to be part of, in some small way, the first steps of healing and repair of those legacies, that has been the greatest joy of my life. And yeah, the moments where I get to witness small parts of possibility that we can stand for something else other than violence in my family and my people, and that people who have had their dreams denied and stolen can begin to dream again. Like, oh, there's nothing more I could want from this lifetime than to be part of that current, part of that moment. So, yeah, it's the best. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it. Gosh, in your letter to your descendants that you title, quote, post-pandemic and post-revolution, you write, quote, don't get me wrong, there is love in our story, but a forgetfulness of what it is for, to commit oneself to place and people, to remember our belonging in the family of things, end quote. And I'm thinking about this quote uh, in terms of how does finding right relationship involve healing both generational ties and ties to place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. I always say that for me, the foundation of my ability to do this work is living in community. I have the great and immense privilege to live in intentional community where I've been for the last this is my eighth year now, and living a commitment to place and living a commitment to that place's people and what comes from commitment, the, the mirrors, the reflection, the accountability, the feedback that both earth and people offer us when we stay long enough in committed relationship. I couldn't do this without that. And I know it will take generations for my lineage to know what it means to be in right relationship with place again after having left our ancestral homelands and stolen those of others and practiced extraction and private property upon them ever since I know it's going to take a long time to undo those things in my body and the bodies of my descendants and I hope that I'm beginning that process 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I'm also thinking about the roles of shame and guilt. And there's another quote that I wanted to read from you in your ancestors and money resource library. And you write, quote, I support people to work through their fears, doubts, worries, stuck places, loneliness, guilt, and shame, disrupting patterns of avoidance, accumulation, hiding, and concealing, and work to create a space where they can take transformative action beyond what they previously thought possible, end quote. And I know personally, guilt and shame were, gosh, like leading actors in my life for a long time. And Mm -hmm. they guided me to, in a lot of ways, do the work that I do. And there was beauty there. And I'm, in a sense, grateful that Mm -hmm. I felt anything, honestly, because uh, so much of the dominant culture is the desensitization of our feelings, both ups and downs. And we're kind of, our feelings are, in a sense, controlled by advertisements and media and schooling and and so on and so forth and and unhealthy family structures. And so I'm grateful to the shame and guilt. And then there was also a time where I realized that these leading actors needed to take a step back and there needed to be new, new guiding forces in my life. And so what roles are shame and guilt playing in this narrative, but also how do we work through shame and guilt without letting it continually consume us? place that I start from with this is that guilt and shame are natural, empathic, human responses to benefiting from injustice. As you said, like, oh, to feel something, to feel something in a world that is painfully wrong and to be on the side of that wrongness in such a way that's giving us perhaps material comfort, perhaps some semblance of safety for however long, but ultimately is hurting others along the way. If we're not feeling something about that, that's the first step is to figure out, to listen for, to notice where our heart is able to open and to lean into that and to let it shake us. And it's also not the destination. I think shame and guilt points us somewhere. It takes us somewhere. Like you said, it can bring us to work that's ours to do. It can bring us to responsibilities that are ours to take, but it won't sustain them it doesn't have an energy that carries us through the challenges we inevitably face when we make different choices than the ones that dominant culture or our families are wanting us to make and so I think what more deeply sustains us is that which we are called to that which we are longing for and it's from that place of looking out of, yeah, to the horizon of what do I really want for this one wild and precious life? As Mary Oliver says, what, what do I want for 
my people, for all people, for this earth? And how can I let that longing move through me? And then give thanks to my friend Justine Epstein and her essay on longing for guiding a lot of my thinking on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to talk about giving thanks more. And I also kind of want to balance that or not balance isn't the right word, but maybe what keeps us from the practice of gratitude, which to me can be this never ending search for security because the scarcity mindset that capitalism offers us really encourages anxiety. And I think it also encourages hoarding and um, lack of mutual aid community. It completely shifts our value system of what we do value. And, And that's also what we value as security. And so I wonder with this scarcity mindset for the never ending search for security. And then on the other side, you know, maybe the antidote is cultivating a practice of gratitude, not the only antidote, but I, I've, I've read that a lot in your work, just um, being grateful and not being grateful for what we're told, um, where we're told gratitude should come from either, because I think there's, you know, I, I don't know, I just had this, I, this thought about the prosperity gospel popping into my head. Um, and it's a really shallow way to be thankful if it's just about wealth accumulation, obviously, or buying things or being able to have whatever we want whenever we want it. And so, um, yeah, I'm wondering if you can kind of tussle with that, um, mm-hmm. the, the never ending search for security and the practice of gratitude. Yeah. I love that you're bringing this in. So along my own journey of figuring out how to redistribute my inherited wealth in the spirit of repair towards healing, I was increasingly finding people who were like coming up to me in the hallway and social movement spaces and saying like, me, me too. Like I, I secretly have this money and I feel alone in it. And so about five years ago, I started offering one-on-one support to people in a more structured way. And I remember it was my, my first session with my first client collaborator. And I was nervous and I got on and the first thing I said was, well, we're going to begin with gratitude because gratitude is the most accessible antidote to capitalism that we have. And I repeated, I have repeated that practice on every call I've ever had with anyone ever since. And I believe it really deeply that just to sit with the miracle that it is to breathe, to drink water, to see the sun come up each day, to sit with like, that I get to be alive today when so many others don't, that I get to be in whatever wellness I have today when so many others don't. What a privilege. Gratitude as 
an antidote and as a foundation and about safety, about security, about scarcity. I think it's totally reasonable for any of us having been raised in a dominant capitalist culture to think that safety comes from money because in some ways it does in some ways it can help us have a roof over our heads food to eat it can have those material consequences for so many and we are on a planet that is shifting rapidly we are in societies that are not yet able to govern themselves amidst intense and painful legacies of oppression. And ultimately, there is no separate safety. And even if there is, it looks like being behind a spiky metal fence far from anyone else with hoarded food in a basement with a private rocket ship ready to leave with armored cars ready to take us to our hideout like the the final expression of what it is to rely on money as our source of safety is a terrifying one and if that's not where we want to go how do we practice other forms of safety here and now how do we practice relying on one another? How do we practice being reliable? I think for a lot of people with wealth, we grew up, we were accustomed to using the capitalist marketplace to meet our needs through the commodification of most forms of labor to support our lives. So what is it to remember how to support one another out of love, how to show up for one another in a spirit of gift, in a spirit of reciprocity. And it can look so simple, like I'm going to pick someone up from the airport so they don't have to call an Uber, or I'm going to pick up their groceries for them so they don't have to use Instacart, or I'm going to ask for those things from others. It starts small, but it's, I think, one of the most fundamental shifts that are required for those of us who've been accustomed to having way too much. love to think about how to move beyond language with reparations because I think that 
Yeah, it's interesting just thinking about how social change happens and how we move through these epiphanies or changes in our uh, understanding of the world. And there's a way in which we can, like for instance, land back or reparations, these big words that encompass so much. It's like, wow, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, but how? You know, what? how, how do people take concrete actions when practicing reparations? And I know you've been practiced and studying this, and I think it's really helpful for us to hear what it can look like and um and also just to say uh to your last response to thinking about driving away in our armored cars or whatever that people use to their bunkers and whatnot i have some friends who are really apocalyptic and and i i really was at a point too and then they're just something shifted in me where i thought is that how i want to survive like, do I want to survive with so much fear, knowing that all that I love, both plant, animal, human, kin, are out there somewhere separate from me suffering? I know we have a human instinct to survive. We're animals, and I, I can understand that. But um, at what cost? I don't know. They're just there. I really had to have a reckoning with myself and my apocalyptic um, story of my journey of how to, you know, for me, stand where I love and fight like hell, you know, stop running, whether that's mm -hmm. running from like the metaphor or the psychological pain or running from actual disasters, uh, like natural disasters or things like that. There's, I think, I think that's also where the spiritual reckoning comes into play where this is really more of a spiritual question than it is just tangible physical logistical yeah i guess you know again like thinking about the logistical question is like logistically how how do we practice reparations how do we practice mutual aid how do we practice this world outside of um selfishness hmm. Hmm. big beautiful question let me all speak to a little bit of the material first and then the spiritual, knowing that they can't really be separated. But yeah, as long as people have been enslaved on this continent, there have been calls for reparations. And as long as there have been European colonists on this continent, there have been calls for land return. And we're in a moment, an extended moment, a generational moment where I think some of us are starting to maybe learn how to listen to those calls a little bit. And it is a big thing to think about how change happens. And I think it's important when we're talking about reparations and land return this is what I've been invited to hold it as, is those need to happen at a governmental institutional scale. Like the U.S. government and other governments need to make repair at a scale that only governments can. And 
how do we not wait for that to happen? Or how do we remember that governments follow the people and that it's only from movements rising up from the grassroots that change can happen at the governmental level? And we see that movement rising up right now at small scales, even when a national, federal, or international conversation can look so regressive. We see towns and cities and institutions and individuals beginning to make acts of repair. And in my journey, what that has looked like is choosing to redistribute the $600,000 that I inherited towards Black and Indigenous-led land projects and social movements. Sometimes we talk about it in an organization I'm part of, Resource Generation, which organizes young people with wealth, wealth and class privilege towards the redistribution of money, land, and power. We talk about it as how do we voluntarily redistribute resources to fund the movement for involuntary redistribution at the scale of reparations and land return? And I've learned so much through that process of moving those resources. And one thing I'll speak to is it's been clear to me all along that I need to practice redistributing power wherever possible over where those resources end up because the ways that I've been acculturated and raised up as a white person through elite education has me really not able to see what is most needed right now. And so some of the resources I've moved have been through things like liberated capital or the movement for black lives or a haymarket people's fund entities where movement leaders are making decisions about where resources need to move in their own communities. And at the same time, if that's the only way I move resources, I'm letting myself off the hook of the hard, intimate, beautiful work of having relationship across lines of race and class where resources are actually moving. And so it has really also been part of my work to move resources to Black and Indigenous, mostly friends and their projects and their dreams for the world. So that's a little of how I'm seeing things happen in my own story and those of others similarly as well. And the spiritual piece, there's, there's no way to move resources that one has been taught are for one's own safety and security out to the world in the spirit of repair without asking some of the deepest questions about what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human? How am I going to do this thing called life? How am I going to dare to do it differently than I was told I should? And those are spiritual questions. They're questions that we can only live 
the answers. We can't just find them. And it also brings up, as I was speaking to earlier, yeah, what is my relationship with my ancestors? How do I feel them? How do I feel how they feel about what's happening now? And what is my relationship with land as a settler on land that is still occupied by me and others? What does it mean to listen for a right relationship with the more than human beings where I am? And to understand that that process of my own transformation of how I'm living to shift as much as I can out of the extractive norms of our world. That's a spiritual practice. Yeah. I think the spiritual psychological elements are so necessary. Like they are the foundation for this work. And I think about just the way we're taught to feel like we are owed something or what's the word that I've heard? Uh, Not that I watch Fox News regularly or anything, but I feel like I could, when when I've seen it, there's this, um, like this, you know, I'm owed this or I deserve this or I worked really hard for this or my grandparents work really hard for this and you know, they, what's the thing, like uh, the bootstraps, there's like that saying of like, lift pull yourself, yourself up. yeah, pull, thank you, pull yourself, I clearly don't use that one a lot, um, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, and so I think, um, and of course, to me, that also ties into manifest destiny, and just the whole way that the United States was formed, especially through the white settler vision of like, if you work hard, then you deserve this inheritance and you deserve the wealth accumulation. But there's no talk about the enslaved people who made that actually happen or the externalities on the earth. Like no money is created freely. Like it's being taken from somewhere, from someone, from people, from land, from water, from... um, And so even the people who, quote, are self-made quote self-made men like even that statement it's like nobody is self-made the if, if if even if you had not one human working for you the earth you are taking everything from the earth to create your self-madeness and so um yeah i so i think this unlearning of what we are owed or what we are uh, what we deserve and then the question is of like, what is our real inheritance then? And if we can let go of the idea of what we're owed um, or what we are born into and yeah, how does that free folks to reinterpret what inheritance might be? And then the question is like, what can we then actually pass down that really matters what stories or artifacts or traditions might make up a deep inheritance and a familial connection far beyond money or material wealth? I mean, I really find when I ask people and when I've been asked myself, what is it that you want future generations to inherit? Most people go to a livable planet. Like, most people go to, oh, I just, 
I want them to be able to live. I want them to know that they are loved. I want them to know they belong. And somehow we've been in this delusion that stealing from others to create temporary material abundance in one place is anything comparable to that and yeah when I think about what I want my descendants to inherit it's deep relationship to land and to place to the knowing of the beings they share this earth with a sense of like a broad interdependent human community where they are deeply known and cared for by many outside of conventional notions of family. I want them to know in their bodies that they have what it takes to care for themselves and care for others, that their gifts are reflected to them by elders and mentors, that they know the truth of their history and the violent legacies that they have been part of such that they can continue the work of making different choices. There's so much I want for them and it doesn't look like money. One time my dad said to me, he said, Morgan, I spent my whole career thinking that my job was to maximize the inheritance of my children. And you're asking me to question all of that. And I heard the pain for him in that of like, oof, what is it to question one's purpose at the, towards the end of one's life? And yes, I am asking him and the generations before us to question all of that. go back to resource generation which you had mentioned before and I want to read their transformative investment principles it says quote our financial system is intentionally complicated and abstract in order to one systemically deny access to women people of color poor and working class communities lgbtq folks and other marginalized groups and two hide the dehumanizing harmful and inequitable nature of investments end quote and 
Yeah, I just think it would be interesting. I'm imagining a lot of folks have never heard of resource generation or the work that they're doing or um, or the work that a lot of folks are doing to bring light to this type of um, these complicated financial systems. And yeah, I'm wondering... So much of the physical structure of our world is shaped by concepts of debt or wealth accrual and inheritance. And I'm wondering how does talking about and demystifying wealth serve to make obvious the ways exploitation has become common courtesy? And then how do we strip away the capitalist alienation that makes complacency within these systems so easy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really, really grateful for resource generation and the generations of people thinking about these questions before me that made that space possible. Yeah. RG is a space where I think sooner or later, if you're a young person under 36 with wealth, whether earned or inherited, some and with progressive social justice or radical values, someone's going to be like, have you heard of RG? (laughs) And that was definitely what happened to me. And it gets to be a space where people can talk about things that they've never had the space to talk about before, which is emotional. And it's processing the feelings and family stories and the the journey of what it's been like to, as we spoke to earlier, be the beneficiary of an unjust system. And it's a space for political education. It's a space for learning about the history of racial capitalism and beginning to become a better, yeah, advocate for bringing that analysis to our families and other wealthy communities. And it's a space for financial education. I think really often folks who have some financial wealth, especially those that inherited it, who have social justice values, there can be a like, I'm just not going to look at this. Like I'm going to pretend this isn't there, or I'm going to just avoid having to face this because yeah so often especially women and queer folks are not being given even conventional financial education let alone radical or reinterpreted financial education and so yeah RG did a lot of work over the last few years to develop those transformative investment principles that are really inviting people to reckon with where where does the money you have sleep at night? Where, what is it up to when it's not yours, when it's at the bank, when it's in the investment portfolio? And yeah, what we see is 99% of the time, money that's out there, supposedly in our name, is up to something. It's up to being used by multinational corporations it's up to yeah providing like investment and resource to maximize shareholder profits and 
further the concentration of wealth. And what we're seeing right now is alternatives emerging. And I would point towards just one example of Seed Commons, which is a national network of non-extractive loan funds governed at the community level, resourcing worker-owned cooperatives where profits belong to the workers that produce them. And it's possible to put one's resources into that pool instead of into the S&P 500. And I feel lucky to be in this work at this time where such alternatives are emerging. Mm -hmm. That's really good to hear about. And I do wonder where, (laughs) if you know, which I'm assuming you have some ideas, like if folks want to find out more resources of where they can invest or, or learn where the money goes, like, and who maybe won't be members of resource generation. Do you have any ideas of where people can follow these threads? Yeah. One, you mentioned my resource library earlier. I have a ton of links in there that point towards a lot of different alternative impact, regenerative solidarity, economy, investments, like this world goes by a lot of names, as well as to financial advisors and financial planners who are able to support people to take their money away from Wall Street and reinvest it in community. One I would point towards is revalue investing out of Michigan can support folks to make a financial plan and put their money 100% in yeah, community enterprises that further solidarity and economic self-determination for communities of color instead of yeah, wealth extraction and hoarding and accumulation for a white elite. And yeah, there's also the next egg, which is a community of people thinking about how to do that with retirement money, um, which is where the majority of Americans that do have investments have those investments in retirement accounts. So that's a big question that's being worked on is, yeah, how do we reinterpret what it means to make a long-term investment, perhaps a long-term investment that furthers climate change or increases wealth inequality is not actually the best thing for our retirement. So grateful for all those folks doing that good work. Yeah. Thanks for the resource library. I'm sure there's a lot there to get into. And, you know, earlier you had mentioned, and of course I know this about you, all of your work with climate justice. And I, I'm interested to see or to hear what your thoughts about climate change are at this point, you know, as you've spent a number of years in the movement and how your work has grown and expanded and shifted and where you feel like the most effective future for climate organizing, yeah, what direction that is going in, could go in, 
Yeah. I don't want to say should go in because I don't know if any of us know that, but yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people will ask me like, oh, how come you don't do that climate stuff anymore? And I still see my work as part of a climate movement broadly defined. I, yeah, it was really what I was asked to do by my peers and elders in the climate justice space was like, please go do the work with your own people. And it's, yeah, how do we, those of us who are stewarding unequal amounts of financial resources, how do we actually invest those in a just transition away from an extractive economy and towards a regenerative life-sustaining economy? That's a framework for movement generation and we need to do it faster than we can possibly imagine and we need to do it in a way that attends to the histories that brought us into climate catastrophe and if we move forward into building a new economy that continues to accumulate wealth and power for a small elite we will not get to a place of stability in our human family and on this planet and so there's urgency in many cases to slow down and to listen to one another and to heal from these histories and from these legacies through repair and I feel like what I've really learned is like the futures that indigenous people dream of, the futures that black folks dream of, those are the futures we all need at this time. And so as we get out of the way, as we move our resources, our prayers, our energy towards the leadership of those that our ancestors harmed, we can move into a place where maybe one day all of our descendants can share this planet in a better way. Well, I'm wondering as we come to a close, I just want to pull a bit more on those dreams or the visions of what abundance could look like in the future and how it could center healing and equity. I, I just like to kind of visualize it all together. Two things that are coming first to mind is land, right relationship with land, indigenous sovereignty and stewardship of land. The, yeah, the world's biodiversity is most concentrated on indigenous lands. What does that tell us about the possibility for ecological regeneration if more and more land can be returned to indigenous hands. And I think about the legacy of Black cooperative development of the ancestral practices of sharing and of building power in community rather than in hierarchy. And what it is to move towards a world in which resources and responsibilities and 
return some rewards are shared amongst all people, those who worked for them, as well as those who are not able to work and where children and elders are cared for and valued as intimate parts of a village of people. So yeah, village might be a word that I feel like I've been taught and am learning to lean into as what we need to remember and move towards again. Mm-hmm. Oh, Morgan, thank you so much for sharing some time with us and taking us on this journey with you. I feel really contemplative and yeah, just just letting it all soak in. And I, I just appreciate your work and how much love and joy and compassion you have brought into it. Thank you for this opportunity to contemplate and reflect with you. And just, yeah, grateful to be also co-dreaming, co-listening, co-learning with you and look forward to where our paths will continue to cross and yeah just a privilege to get to spend some time thank you for listening to for the wild podcast the music you heard today was by andy talent handmade moments and ella spaulding for the wild is created by ayana young erica ekram francesca glassbell and julia jackson